John 15, 18 through 16 forward, Jesus offers an explicit warning to his apostles of a coming hatred, a gospel anger and antagonism from this evil world system, a hostility that Jesus himself experienced firsthand to the greatest extent and the deepest extent. Yet a warning of hatred which now, starting in verse 18, is promised to overflow to Jesus' apostles and, by extension, Christ's people. Why? Because they're committed to him. They love him. Again, by extension, to all believers who, in the words of the Apostle Paul, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. This is our promise as well. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know the scene We've been in the upper room. It's been a heavy night for Jesus' men. In chapter 13, Jesus predicted that one of their own would betray him. It's a prophecy that sent shockwaves through this group. Jesus then followed it up by saying, Peter, by name, Peter would deny him. In chapter 14, still in the upper room, Jesus announces that he would be leaving them, leaving him through the cross, leaving them by ascension to his father. And so you can add then this this stirred agitation, the sorrow that now fills their shocked and fearful hearts. And then you come into chapter 15, they've left the upper room, they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, And just when you think it cannot get any worse for these men, in chapter 15, Jesus promises them future heartache and coming pain. Look at verse 20. He promises them persecution. Persecution energized by Satan himself. Again, why? Because they love Christ, because they're committed to him. And so as we come to the end of chapter 15, the shadow of Christ's cross is growing dark. And this darkness of evil is now promised to spill over to them. This is why Jesus prays in chapter 17. Jesus prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Guard them, protect them, shield them. From who? Keep them from the evil one, the one who's energizing this anger and this hatred. Why does Jesus pray this? Because he knows that chapter 18 is coming when Satan will be let loose to do his worst against God's son and then God's people. Turn to chapter 18 just for a moment. This is coming. Jesus knows it. He promises persecution. He then prays for endurance through it. Chapter 18, verse 3. It's all now beginning. Judas, indwelt by Satan, betrays Jesus with a kiss. Chapter 3, verse 3. In verse 12, Jesus is bound and brought to stand before the evil Sanhedrin, the Roman cohort, and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, led him to Annas first. He's going to stand before the Sanhedrin. They've already pronounced him guilty even before trial. 
They've decided his execution months ago. And then this evil court then turns Jesus over to Pilate in John 19, verse 1. Notice Pilate then takes Jesus and scourges him. He scourges Jesus. He scorns justice. And then verse 16, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. So all that's coming. All that's promised. All that's anger and hatred against Jesus. So these next few hours will be the most heinous hours within human history. Evil has never seen before or since. So back to chapter 15 then. What does Jesus promise these men? What is Jesus' message to them? And it's certainly not the common 21st century, easy to believe, trivialized hollow Joel Osteen-ish message of salvation. Everything's gonna be fine. Have no worries, right? No worries because everything's gonna be good on the surface, no. Jesus says we can have faith in him and a confidence in him, but understand what's coming. Because of our union with Christ and because of our commitment to his gospel, Jesus says we will experience anger, against us, really against Christ, and pain and outrage from this world. And it's not just going to be any anger. No, no. This will be gospel anger that finds its source in Satan himself. So we saw in verse 18, if the world, the evil world system, system ruled by Satan, energized by the devil, if this world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Hatred's coming. If you are of the world, if you are a child of Satan, the world would love its own. The problem is you're not. You're not of this world. You belong to a different realm. You're part of a different family. Why? Because I chose you out of the world. We're a recipient of Christ's grace. Because of this, the world hates you. And this is not isolated. This is going to be what Paul refers to in Philippians chapter one. Listen to what he writes. Philippians 1, 29. It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, and we love that, don't we? It's been granted for Christ's sake that we believe. That's sovereignty, that's grace and mercy. We believe because of Christ. But then he says this, but also to suffer for his sake. That's also been granted to us through his choosing of us. And so Jesus here, again, warns them of this anger, but it finds its source in Satan himself. And it's satanic hatred that then moves to evil action. And we see that in verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, this is now inner rage that leads to external persecution, they will also persecute you. So he's focused there and saw the many faces, the many forms of this gospel anger, from personal insults to public humiliation, blatant intimidation, physical harm, all of it wrapped up in verse 20. 
Why? Why? Because the roots of gospel hatred go down deep. The roots go down deep into the heart of the sinner. Because Christ's gospel is like no other message. The world hates us. Why? Because when Christ's gospel is proclaimed, it inflames the guilty conscience they're trying to suppress. That's what we saw in verses 21 through 24. Jesus says, but all these things, all this gospel anger, they will do to you for my name's sake. Why? Because they do not know the one who sent me. Their eyes are blind to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. They're in a realm of darkness and they love darkness. And the gospel exposes the darkness, exposes their sinfulness and fault and blame. And once that guilt is exposed, the sinner has nowhere else to hide. The conscience bears down heavy upon them, accuses them day and night. Look at verse 22. This is why Jesus then says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. That is to say, if Christ never proclaimed his gospel, apply this to us. If we never proclaim the gospel, if we stay silent, then the world can continue in its darkness hiding from its own sin, acting as if it has no sin, justifying its sin away, silence, silencing its conscience. But again, here's the problem. We can't stay silent. And thus, when Christ's gospel is proclaimed, all of those suppressing efforts are obliterated. The sinner's guilt is exposed. Look at verse 22. And now because of the proclamation of the gospel now, they have no excuse. They can no longer stay in the dark. They can no longer offer any defense for their sin. Thus, there's only two answers now at this point for the world. Two answers. One, repent and believe. Bow in submission to Christ. Or silence the Christian, the gospel, by any means necessary. So this is what Jesus has promised up to this point. So if Jesus' message ends here, then this would be the most depressing promise you could ever hear. Because what does this mean? It means that Satan wins. His anger prevails. God's will has been thwarted. But that's not where Jesus' warning of hate ends here, far from it. Notice verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without excuse. Read it again. They have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. This is the fourth point in our outline as we work through Jesus' promise here, this is the divine sovereignty over all gospel hatred. The divine sovereignty over all gospel hatred from the satanic source to the many faces, the different roots. This is now sovereignty over all of this. Our hope when gospel persecution comes our way is this. Here's our hope. 
that none of the world's evil against us, none of Satan's wicked schemes, none of them ever falls outside of God's sovereign decree. That all of it, no matter how heinous, how wicked, how evil, all of it is working together for the glory of our Savior. And amazingly, all of it is working together for the good of God's people. That's the promise, that's our hope. And that's Jesus' message in verse 25. Let's unpack this. We'll expand from here. Notice how he begins. He says, but they have done this. If you have a New American Standard, you see that they have done this as an italics, not in the original, it's implied. Literally, the text reads, but to fulfill the word, to fulfill the word. But what fulfills the word? Answer all of the gospel hatred that Jesus has mentioned up to this point. All of that, all of this works together. So just think of what this means for Jesus, what he's saying for him. What is he referring to here? He's referring to the bribing of Judas to betray him. He's referring to wrongfully being arrested when he had committed no crime. He's referring to the Supreme Court of the land sacrificing justice to assure his death. He's referring to the religious leaders accosting him with berating accusations and then allowing false testimony to be said about him as he stands trial. He's referring to the Roman soldiers scourging him with whips of leather and bone and then humiliating him with a crown of thorns and a purple robe and then beating him on the head with a mocking scepter and spitting and slapping him across the face and forcing him to carry his own crossbar on his filleted back. Then pounding nails into his hands and his feet. And before that, stripping his clothes off of him and then raising him above the ground only to be mocked further. All of that he's referring to. He's referring to evil, evil. This is wicked. The most heinous form of evil, to condemn the, to death the Lord of life and then sit there and smugly watch him. He's, they're haughty. John Piper's right, he writes this, that Jesus will experience in a matter of hours, quote, the most spectacular sin, the apex of evil. Can't get more evil or wicked. So that's what Jesus is referring to here. But as we've seen, the evil promised in John 15 is not just for Jesus. Slave is not greater than his master. This extends to the apostles as well. Again, verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So what does this mean for them? These 11? Well, it means horrific suffering that they would experience not only in a few hours, but the decades ahead of them. For Peter, Jesus promises that he would be imprisoned with these words, imprisoned three times and beaten and then ultimately crucified upside down. That's, that's Peter's fate. 
for James, it meant being beheaded by Herod Agrippa, Acts 12. For Philip, it meant imprisonment, scourging, and crucifixion. For Matthew, it meant death by a sword, again, beheading. For James the Less, it meant being stoned to death. For Andrew, it meant hanging on a cross for three days. For Thomas, it meant death by a spear. For Bartholomew, it meant being clubbed to death. For the other Simon, the other Judas, it meant crucifixion. And for John, who writes this, it means imprisonment and banishment. That's the promise for the apostles here. That's evil, all of it, all of it's evil. It's pain, it's death. But as we've seen, John 15 is not just for the apostles either. What we see in John 17 is Jesus praying for those who believe in Christ through the apostles' word. And thus, verse 25, they have done this also refers to Christians even today. Let me give you some stats. 360 million Christians are right now facing, right now, that's the number, 360 million Christians are right now living in nations that have high levels of persecution against them. 360 million. They're experiencing firsthand the gospel hatred Jesus promises here. That is one out of every seven Christians in this world, they're in a place that have, it's been designated high levels of persecution, one out of every seven Christians. It's one in every five believers in Africa, two of every five believers in Asia, one of every 15 believers in Latin America. This is true for them. One Christian living in Nigeria, he writes this, once Here's the quote, once you are a Christian in Nigeria, your life is always at stake. Just reminds me of Paul, I carry around the death of Christ in my body. Again, in Nigeria, according to Open Doors, a report, quote, it has become increasingly clear that Christians cannot count on the security apparatus for their protection. That is to say, the justice system has turned against them. And certainly we can bring this to us in our context, though a lesser degree still true. We face this even here. We'll face it to an even greater degree later when God's hand of protection is finally removed. Again, this is evil, all of it. All of it's evil. All of it's wicked and heinous. Satanic, demonic rage. But continue verse 25. But they have done this. Notice what Jesus then adds, key word. They have done this to fulfill. That's the word of hope now. To fulfill, to carry out God's decreed will, to accomplish God's perfect design. All of this evil is meant to fulfill the word that is written in their law. And Jesus now quotes three Psalms. Three Psalms. Psalm 35, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. Psalm 35, 69, 109. We'll read them in a second. Each of those Psalms speak of the hatred and the pain David experienced. Each of those Psalms are a foreshadowing of the greater David to come, the Messiah to come. 
that he would experience this same hatred and gospel anger. You take a look at what's promised in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, what you see, it's not that when the Messiah comes, he'd be loved and hailed and accepted and cherished. That's not what we read. What we read is that he would be hated, and that's what we see here. They hated Maseo, detested, abhorred. They hated me. David writing that about himself. Jesus now able to say that about himself. They hated me without a cause. Think of Isaiah. They despised me. They forsook me. It's true for the Messiah. It's true for David. It's also true for us. Listen to Psalm 35, 19. Here's David's prayer. Again, what Jesus is referring to, do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. That's what's taking place in David's life. They're rejoicing. Nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. They're scheming behind his back. They're celebrating his downfall. Psalm 69.4, another Psalm of David, those who hate me Without a cause or more than the hairs of my head. Ever feel that way? They're all around. They outnumber me. And then Psalm 109. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. They plot evil against me. They spread lies about me. And now Jesus applies that same principle that was true of David to himself and by application, it applies to us as well. Now let's draw two ways we can indeed apply this to us. Two ways. The first is this. The first is this. If the world is going to hate us, which it will do, But if the world is going to hate us, it better be because of one thing. It better be because of our stand with Christ and his gospel. According to Jesus here, there's no other reason, no other cause that is acceptable. No other reason, no other cause that is acceptable. And I think that's what Peter's referring to. Peter's referring to in his application of this same principle. I'm going to read it. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. Just listen to what Peter writes. He says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Who cares? You sin against the world, you're treated wrongfully, and then you endure. Who cares? You've sinned. That accomplishes nothing. But if when you do what is right, when you stand for Christ when you're bold about his gospel, when you stand for what is right and suffer suffer for it, and you patiently endure that, this finds favor with God. Which then he follows this up in 1 Peter chapter three. He says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, it's so key, that's why we suffer. That's why the world hates us, for righteousness sake. If that happens, then you're blessed. That's when you do not need to fear their intimidation or be troubled. And then notice what this standing for righteousness entails. Here it is, verse 15. It's when we sanctify Christ 
as Lord in our hearts. We set him as Lord. We bow before him daily. Watch now, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that we have. That's gospel hatred. If they hate you for that, then you're blessed. But if you're experiencing hatred from the world because you've sinned or are harsh against them, what does it matter? This is the only acceptable reason. It must not be because of our proud, unforgiving, unloving attitude. It must not be for that. In fact, in fact, Peter even follows this up. Give an account. Give a reason for the hope. And then he says this, with gentleness and reverence. There's a gentleness there. This is the only acceptable reason. If the world hates us because we are a Christian nationalist, what does it matter? If the world hates us because we're involved with fruitless debates, who cares? Again, the only acceptable reason to attract the world's anger is because of our commitment to him, to Christ and his gospel. There should be no other cause, no other excuse. And that's exactly what we see with Jesus. Jesus gave no grounds to hate him other than his gospel. It was the only reason. Those who wanted to kill him could point to no other explanation other than the message he proclaimed. We saw that back in John 7. The world hates me, Jesus says. Why? It's not because of his politics. It's not because of his stance on any social issue. None. It's not because of his attitude, not because of his tone. The world hates me because I bear witness about it that its deeds are evil. I call them to repentance, to salvation. And we need to mark this application clearly. We must do all that we can not to provoke hatred from this world for any other reason. That's application number one. Application number two. When the world is angered against us because of our stance with the gospel, when that does take place. Here's the second application. We must remember Jesus' words and Jesus' promise here that though we experience evil and though it's wicked and though it may be painful, we must remember that none of the world's anger against us falls outside of God's sovereign decree. Rather, it actually fulfills God's perfect design for his people. In Jesus' case, the world's hatred against him fulfilled the Psalms about him ultimately. But not only that Psalm that we read, that Jesus refers to, the world's hatred against him also fulfills Psalm 22. They'll gather around him, scoff at him, and mock him. Fills Isaiah 53, despised and forsaken. Zechariah 11, he'll be the pierced God. Evil being used by God to fulfill his purposes. Again, the point is this, the rejection Christ experienced and the pain that he would soon suffer 
was not outside of God's sovereign design for his first coming at all. It was actually fulfillment of God's prophecies, his prophesied will for his son. And thus for us, for us, when we experience the world's hatred because of our commitment to Christ, that same truth remains. We are not experiencing anything outside of God's sovereign will. No, we are fulfilling Jesus' promise in John 15, decreed by his Father. Again, the point is God's sovereignty rules over all gospel hatred. One commentator has written this, these words assure the reader that all of this, all of these predictions of persecution and death, all of them, all of them are under the control of God, right? All of this does not mean that people had become too strong for God and that matters were now no longer under his control. No, rather, these words mean that they would simply set forward what God had planned. That's God's sovereign providence and decree. God taking what man means for evil, turning it for what he means for good. Their very hatred was foretold in scripture and in the end, watch, in the end, God is not mocked. His purposes come to their appointed conclusion, always. That is exactly what we find taking place as you trace this word fulfill. In verse 25, you trace this word fulfill throughout Jesus's Passion Week. Five times, five times this word fulfill is used throughout this week in connection to the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, five times. And each time, each time it highlights God's sovereign control over the most heinous acts of sin. Each time. Look at these with me. Look at John 13. John 13, again, this is Thursday evening. Judas's coming betrayal comes into view now. John 13, 18. I know the ones I have chosen, Jesus says. But it is that the scripture may be, there's a word, fulfilled. Quoting Psalm 41, 9. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's fulfilling. This evil is fulfilling God's will, his purposes. In John 17, 12, there's a repeat of this. The son of perdition, uh, the one who will die an eternal death because he's the defector, the betrayer. He's going to do this so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Same word. So Judas's betrayal, though evil, though sin, though he's responsible for all of it, Judas's betrayal was not a thwarting of God's design in any way. It's actually a fulfillment of it. Turn to John 18. John 18. You now come into the courtroom for a pilot. Look at verse 31. Pilate looks at the religious leaders and he says, take him yourselves. Take him yourselves. I want nothing to do with, with him. I've already pronounced him innocent numerous times. 
Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. But the Jews are adamant here, said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. If Pilate gives Jesus back to the Jews, Jesus would not have been executed on a cross. That's Gentile execution. In fact, he would not have been executed at all. The Jews do not have the authority to do this under Roman rule. And thus, if Pilate stands on principle, which he should, and if Pilate upholds righteousness, which he should, Jesus would never have died. But what does Pilate do? He does not uphold righteousness. He caves under the pressures of the mob. He spurns the law. Again, that's evil. That's the court system, judicial system turning against righteousness. That's evil. That's sin. And yet, what are we told? This is all by God's sovereign design. Verse 32. All of this was to fulfill the words of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So if there's no cowardly, sinful, evil pilot, there is no crucifixion. If there's no crucifixion, there's no fulfillment of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12. Christ is not true, can't be trusted, because he promised this. All of this evil was meant to fulfill the words of Jesus. Again, this is God's sovereignty overruling a wicked court system and an evil ruler. Turn to John 19. John 19, where we read of the Roman guards now. Verse 24, the Roman guards are casting lots for Jesus' clothes. Why do they do this? It's meant to heap further ridicule upon him. It's meant to be a picture of the worthlessness of this man that hangs above them. So verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. Again, that's evil. And then John adds this. This was to, what's the next word? Fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to carry out God's decree, which had been recorded back in the Old Testament, Psalm 22. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast Lots. Wickedness promised by God to fulfill God's decree. Which then leads into verse 36, 1936. Why did, why was Jesus speared in the side? Verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. In every case, in every case of this fulfillment language, as you work your way through the Passion Week, every case, there is evil committed against the Son of God. Every instance. And yet John is quick to show us that though each act was evil, each act fulfills God's sovereign decree foretold in the scriptures. I think John Piper nails, nails it with these words. Here's what he writes. 
From all these prophecies, we know that God foresaw and did not prevent and therefore included in his plan that his son would be rejected, hated, absconded, betrayed, denied, condemned, spit upon, flogged, mocked, pierced, and killed. All these were explicitly in God's mind before they actually happened as things that he planned would happen to Jesus. These things did not just happen. They were foretold in God's word. God knew they would happen and could have planned to stop them, but he didn't. So they happened according to his sovereign will. And then he adds this statement, people lift their hand to rebel against the most high only to find that their rebellion is unwitting service in the wonderful designs of God. That's our hope. The hardened disobedience of men's hearts leads not to the frustration of God's plans, but to their fruition. So Paul referred to, we've been chosen to believe, but also chosen to suffer. Well, continue turning your Bible, turn to Acts chapter two. This is how the apostles interpret this evil. Look at Acts chapter two. How does Peter, how does Peter explain the evil that comes against Christ? Verse 22, 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene delivered over, betrayed in the hands of a wicked court, watch now, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's ordained by God. Before the foundation of the world, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he was nailed to a cross, watch now, by the hands of godless men. You have God's sovereignty and now this evil falling under, God's sovereignty overruling it. Nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. And he was put to death. Man sins, God decrees. Turn to Acts 4. Same message. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, two evil world system rulers, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Spans the spectrum now. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God's not the author of evil, but he certainly ordains it, decrees it. That's how the apostles interpreted these evil acts. This all goes back to Jesus' words back there, if you can, John 15, all back to verse 25. They have done this to fulfill my Father's sovereign will. Again, the point is this, not even the grossest of evil and the most sinister of satanic rage against Christ falls outside of his father's sovereign decree. In fact, each evil act 
is actually sin used by God, sovereignly allowed by God, predestined by God, ordained by God. You can choose your word so that his redemptive purposes would be accomplished and the greatest good would be experienced by his people. And if this was true for the son, the perfect one, how much more is this true for us? As fury rages against us because of our commitment to Christ, and gospel hatred is experienced by us because of our boldness for Jesus. And persecution might soon come our way because of our union with Christ. Again, the application in each of those scenarios is that none of that evil is evidence that God has lost his grip upon this world. None of it. Rather, it is confirmation that the Lord's sovereign decree is being fulfilled. This was the reminder, the comfort, the hope Jesus' apostles needed to hear at this moment on this night. They needed hope. This is the hope that Jesus gives. And this is the theology, this is the doctrine of sovereignty we need to embrace now as this evil world system closes in around us. Again, what is the doctrine that no matter the extent or the severity or the form that gospel hatred will show itself to be? It will never thwart God's redemptive plans, but will actually be used by God, decreed by God to fulfill his redemptive and perfect designs. And if you ever doubt that, if you ever doubt that, then look to the cross. In fact, what we celebrate now is a living picture of that doctrine of sovereignty. What we celebrate now is a constant reminder that the evil plans of men, the unhinged fury of Satan, which put Jesus on the cross, all of it did not thwart God's glory. No, it actually revealed God's glory at the same time bringing the greatest good to us, evil used to bring us salvation from sin and reconciliation to our Savior and ultimately everlasting glory in fullness of joy at his right hand. Father, as we celebrate the death of our Savior, let us be reminded of the sin that put him there and let us then remember quickly your power over all evil and the resurrection of your son. It's a weird thing to do, to celebrate death. Oh, but it was necessary for us. This is your grace at its height. And so prepare our hearts to think deeply upon the cross of Jesus. Humble us to remember his perfect life that we could not live and his sacrificial death for us and his glorious resurrection. 
conquering sin, Satan, and death. Lord, let us take these elements in a worthy manner. Forgive us of sin. Grant us repentance to turn from sin, cause our hearts to be soft. Allow us to offer prayers of repentance to you now so that we can celebrate this with a right heart. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.